Hello, and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh, and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode, we're talking all things Albert Brooks. I'm happy to be joined by recurring guest Josh Brown. Josh, what's up? Hey, how you doing, my guy? Good, good. Good to have you back. And for the first time, I am joined by our friend Holden Martinson. Holden, thanks for doing this with us. No, no. Thank you. (laughs) So... (laughs) I, I I was excited to do a podcast to talk about Albert Brooks, guys, because, I mean, he's someone who kind of threw Josh a little bit. I got into his movies, and then all of a sudden, uh, Criterion just dropped, like, all the ones that are kind of well-received well, well received all, all at once last month. And I just kind of thought, oh, well, this might be a cool guy to revisit because we're still kind of having to do some podcasts on old movies. And uh, I haven't really seen anyone else do this yet because – everyone's trying to figure out different kind of ways to talk about old movies until we kind of have new releases every week again. And I just thought this would be a fun one to revisit because I, I hadn't seen real life before and I saw Holden logged a couple of them on Letterboxd and really liked them. So I thought it'd be kind of fun to visit these together. And I've talked about him with some with Josh before. So Holden, I guess I want to first ask you, as someone that's now kind of visited all these movies of his that he made throughout the late 70s through mid 90s, how did you kind of come to Albert Brooks first? And was it as a filmmaker or was it also as an actor? And then what was your kind of overall impression as you went from maybe viewing him as just like kind of a, a, a comedic performer in general to as a filmmaker? Did you have like any kind of big takeaways based on how you were first introduced to him now that you've seen all these movies? Yeah. And uh, well, as, as I'm sure you're about to hear for the first time, uh, you know, uh, I think for a lot of people our age, the first you know point of reference for Albert Brooks is where he's uh, in Finding Nemo, where he's kind of playing uh, himself as an animated fish. Um, (laughs) and then I didn't see him in anything else until drive, um, which must've been like high school for me, maybe early college. And that's an, that's a performance I definitely appreciate more knowing his earlier work and sort of his star persona, um, you know, in the decades before that. But after that, I think in college, uh, in a screenwriting class, I, uh, we watched broadcast news and that is when um, when Brooks became kind of one of my guys. Um, his character in that movie is I, I very much relate to in sort of his his just frustration and more importantly, his pettiness of everything around him. And, uh, you know, then I think later when his movies had dropped um, on Netflix a few years ago, um, and he, they had done like kind of a small roll up for that when I had seen Mo- uh, modern romance. And I was, I think I, I was in my second year of film school for all intents and purposes. And, and he, that's, that, that's when I knew he was an all timer for me, mm-hmm. um, just as a, as a, as a film presence, cause it gets into, you know, he, he, that's, that comes before broadcast news, but it's all the same thing, kind of the neuroses and the, um, sort of, uh, and more in modern romance, kind of the uh, the indecision and um, insecurities. Insecurity. That's a really good word. There's a lot in that movie that I find to be uh, <laughs> that I find very uh, close to life, um, and not in a way that I find particularly flattering, but nope. you know, is definitely very representative of my own <laughs> self image. And then um, later on, I had caught lost in America. And I like that movie a lot. Um, and then I was able to catch up with them, you know, with this criterion release and for the most part, just incredibly impressed with his other movies. 
to some degree or another. Yeah. Uh, I think he's a real special filmmaker. Yeah, I was kind of the same way too. And then I, I mean, I saw I saw Nemo, and I think I probably saw broadcast news and drive before I ever actually watched any one of his films, and maybe even out of sight. And so I, I just knew him as an actor. And I, I think when I uh, became friends with Josh and I kind of saw him logging some of them on Letterboxd, I, I became a little more curious. And I, and I think I watched Modern Romance first out of the ones he made. And it, it just left such a bad taste in my mouth. And I, I say that as a compliment based on, like, what he's trying to accomplish in that film. But I, yeah. I, I, as I started to watch the other ones that are uh, not as tough as sits, uh, at least for in my opinion, I, I, I was like, I, I grew yeah. even more fond of him, even if I really think he does accomplish exactly what he wants to accomplish in uh, Modern Romance. Uh, Josh, what do you really connect with in his movies? Well, I kind of have like a very similar thing with Holden where like, you know, it's very easy to identify with the Albert Brooks like persona when you're watching the film. Uh, And maybe it's just like self-hatred that like (laughs) I identify with this narcissistic, insecure, neurotic uh, caricature that he plays time and time again. But like... You know, I like you guys, like I came to his movies like through a similar way in the sense of like I knew him a little bit as a performer because of like Finding Nemo and Drive. And then I came to him as a director kind of like 2015 where like if people don't know, like a a huge like director that I I was into um, who was, you know, canceled uh, is Woody Allen. And and so like in that. Pete yeah. Void, where I'm like, okay, I, I like that sensibility, but what if, you know, we kind of take some of the problematic stuff away? Like, Albert Brooks kind of filled, like, a very neat void. I mean, I think they're different filmmakers, um, but, like, you know, comparable in the sense that they are 70s uh, Jewish, like, uh, 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 directors uh, that do a lot of uh, socially satirical stuff. But I, I find, like, Albert Brooks, Brooks, you know, he does have this like West Coast vibe to him, whereas Woody's New York, but also his stuff is very uh, acidic. There, like, you know, I think with Woody, I think he's there's a little bit more sentimentality um, than even people give him credit for. But like with Brooks, it's like all that warmth is just taken away. Like, this is a very uh, uh, dark vision of humanity that he has. <laughs> and and you know, often at times at his own expense, and 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 also and it's this weird marriage of you know he's looking at real life like uh, psychology and sociology, but also doing it in like in the case of real life and defending uh, in defending your life his two life movies. There's also this absurdist like almost like feels like they're like, you could find them in like a short story section of like the new yorker or whatever uh just the absurdist premises of his films uh, I, th- oh, I think it's funny you, you mentioned woody allen and also just the fact that he's quote-unquote canceled in that i i was gonna ask because I, you're, you're far more well-versed in his movies than i am but i think it's kind of funny that yes albert brooks isn't problematic in that way but uh w- would it be fair to say he probably cause, and they're, they're both similar in that they also not only just that they similar sensibilities said these Jewish guys, but also that like they tend to cast themselves as you know different, slightly altered versions of themselves in a lot of their movies, and it seems like Albert Brooks as probably even cast the, that version of himself in a lot of these movies in like a in a harsher light. I mean, you use the term Hasidic, but it's like he, he's he's bold enough to just like turn himself into like an unlikable figure in a lot of these movies, which is I don't know. I think it's I, I just think it's a very interesting choice instead of just playing someone that's like wholly wholly different. He's at least in a lot of these movies, he's like entertainment adjacent, if nothing else, and even plays himself in real life. 
Yeah, no, like that was, and again, like when I was watch, rewatching real life, I just thought, holy shit, that is really bold of him that the characters, <laughs> it doesn't have a different name. It, it is called, he is called Albert Brooks. He is playing a version of himself. And it is like, you know, like when Sasha Barrett Cohen is kind of doing like a, a, a similar like performance art type thing. Um, and then again, it, it's not performance art, but like uh, what, like when he's doing like his caricatures and stuff where he's getting these like uh, 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 cringe like uh, circumstances that he's in, uh, inserting himself in, he is doing it as Borat. He is doing it as Bruno, right? There is some distance between the person he is playing. Albert Brooks is like, nah, like <laughs> this is this is who I am. And I, I assume that's not like, I feel like that is not him. But also speaking about the Woody thing about like they both cast each other. I do think you probably don't have Albert Brooks per, uh, directorial career without Woody Allen. Cause at this time when real life comes out in 1979, you know, Woody's on like this run of his early comedies. He has already won the Oscar for Annie Hall and kind of paved this path for comedian turned directors. And I think they, again, make different films, but I do think like, you know, there, they, there's a lot of, you know, similarities. And also I think, one influenced the other as well. Yeah, I think Albert Brooks definitely fills the void that because uh, that Woody Allen leaves because by the end of like his Annie Hall, by the end of that, by the time Annie Hall and Manhattan come around, he's like transitioning into full like drama. European new wave, like Bergman esque. Yeah. Like yeah, like like kind of domestic dramas a lot of a lot of the time, or like very kind of like um, wry character studies or whatever you know when you get into the you know 80s 90s 80s and 90s yeah and then um then albert brooks starts making these very caustic very self-deprecating comedies you know which are you know as you say they're like woody allen even in movies where he's low status or he's the underdog he always you always kind of come around to his side of things or you end up liking for uh, liking him uh for the most part by the end mm -hmm. um even when he is like childish or 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 antagonistic, whereas Albert Brooks is is very uh, he's has no vanity about himself in that way. <laughs> well, um, what was funny was that as I was watching Real Life, which is like kind of the last of those of of these kind of movies that are in this collection on Criterion, is the last one I had seen. During the first half of the movie, I was like, "Oh, this seems like a very put together version of himself." It doesn't seem like I was thinking. I was like, "It doesn't seem in keeping with a lot of the choices he makes with these characters in these other movies." And then it was completely off the rails in the second half of the movie. I was like, "Oh wow!" Like I got I got a little bit ahead of myself there. Oh well, I think it's important to um, to sort of just for context, you know, Albert Brooks, um, that character in real life uh, is sort of to me like a logical ex uh, extension of the persona where he played himself in um short films he did for snl right. um, in those early seasons where you kind of get a sense of this person who is like very winky and um has this sardonic sense of humor and then real life capitalizes that and takes it to <laughs> to <laughs> its logical conclusion um See yeah, like I I'm glad that you like brought up the um the short films that he did for SNL because that's like the first time he gets a hold of a camera and he's directing something. And one of the short films he did, and it was an extension of a piece that he did in a um a comic uh a magazine, which was basically he created it was like the Albert Brooks School of Comedy, 
where he created this like fictional like comedy school that like comedians would have to do. It's a very absurdist like premise for a short. And basically, real real life has that style, has that structure of like let me give you like an absurdist concept, and I'm inserting myself into it um, as as your host, uh, uh, and then you know. And again, things go off the rails and stuff like that. But also, as you were saying, like he was also a stand-up comedian, and like his early comedy records, he has this like it's like he it's kind of like very Steve Martin esque, uh, mm-hmm. uh, where they're doing this absurdist like take on your like nightclub comics, and so there's like him with like a ventriloquist and he. <laughs> ventriloquist (laughs) but doing these like very tacky like borscht belt type uh uh, nightclub acts or whatever and that's how he opens real life where there's like a band at this like town hall meeting that he's doing it's a music man thing it's like proto marge versus the monorail oh yeah (laughs) which i imagine he's like an influence probably on conan o'brien who wrote that episode so oh, yeah. so I, I, I want to talk about modern romance because that we kind of touched on real life like that. And I think it's fascinating, as we discussed a little bit before we started recording, that, it, it, that to me that felt like almost like a culmination of like a lot of his other movies when it was actually his first feature. So, like, Holden, what do you make of like him starting out with a movie like that and then going right back into doing something that's like so much more smaller in scope like modern romance that, honestly, I think you could probably count the speaking parts on two hands. Yeah, so... With real life, it, it does seem like the like the the end piece for his his film career, which you know kind of does peter out, unfortunately. Which I, I've you know unfortunately haven't seen his last two movies. Um, uh, I guess The Muse and uh, Finding Mother. Comedy in the Muslim World. Um, oh. Did you see Mother? I did see Mother. Yeah, yeah, I saw that one. Yeah, that's kind of where I consider because um, th- that was in the collection. So that's kind of like the end of the era I keep referring to when I try and right, right, refer right. to this stuff. Yeah. But uh, as far as um, real life goes, it works just as well as the thesis because um, it's like, look, what I'm going to do as a director is I'm going to watch these um, cultural uh, institutions and phenomena, and I'm going to see how far I can take it. And I'm going to try to be as honest as I can, but as we see, it just sort of goes off the rails in every instance, and uh, with the exception of, of defending your life, I think. Which is uh, which we'll get to, but I think he's a very earnest. Maybe he's only like truly, like unabashedly, like sincere movie, and it's not so good. Anyway, <laughs> you don't think defending your life is good? <laughs> uh, I don't. I think it's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. Is I, I my kind of thought once I watched all of them, and I, I think I think Mother's, at least in my opinion, it's probably clearly the weakest of all of these of all these movies. Even if I, 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 I certainly find stuff in it yeah. to en- to enjoy. You know, I think even after watching it, I was like, this still feels really in keeping with everything he does because when it comes down to it, I think he just really. I think, well, to a certain extent, all movies are about humans behaving in certain ways. Like, I think he's really fascinated by human behavior, and it's kind of funny that he like Trojan horses, like making movies like that in comedies. And, I, you know, one thing that was interesting when I was going back and I was like, oh, well, I'm curious what people thought of this at the time. So, like, I went on Rotten Tomatoes and was trying to see if there were that many reviews up there from anyone reputable that I could reference on Modern Romance. And there just wasn't much. A lot of them are, like, where they show the blurbs, but they don't have the review actually anymore. And it seemed like it was a lot of people that were kind of negative on it because they're like, there isn't anything funny in here, really. I mean, Did I did not see that Hulk scene. 
Well, yeah, that 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 is hilarious. But I think it's weird. I think maybe because of his reputation at the time, I think a lot of people were expecting just more of a straight comedy. And it's like, no, I think he's just really fascinated about like what makes people tick. And uh, obviously, like I think real life, like it's all about that on such a in a, in a more macro way. And here he's like, you know, what? I'm just gonna like really zone in on like just these two people and get, get inside of them. And it it wasn't. It's not fun. And I feel I felt dirty at the end of it the first time I watched it. Like I I, I I honestly like and I was like this is I'm miserable. I feel unclean having been in the middle of this relationship for an hour and a half, and I just want to get away from it. And I and and that that was literally my first reaction. I think I watched it five years ago. It was like the first one, and I was like, yeah, you know, like I I don't I think I told Josh after I watched it for the first time. I never feel the need to watch it again. But it was an incredible depiction of a toxic relationship. And I thought maybe it'll hit me a little different. I'm almost thirty years old now, and I was I guess twenty four or twenty five when I first watched it. I guess, and I thought, you know, like uh, maybe it'll hit me different. I'm a little older. Not that I've really been in a relationship like that, but you know, maybe something will strike me different. And I felt like I needed to take a shower after watching it. I was like in bed and perfectly clean i felt unclean again i was like i i think whatever he wants to do here it just really works on me and i think he just him whatever he's feeling that he felt the need to get out and really drill down about like the push and pull between these two people and how unhealthily codependent it is it works and exactly the way he wants it to and i i honestly don't know what'll ever get me to watch it again i this podcast made me watch it again because i'm a professional and i wanted to actually be able to remember specifically what happened but like you know what i never need to go back to it and uh and yeah i don't know uh josh what do you think about uh, modern romance as far as like your visceral reaction to it as you're watching it because it's like it's really unpleasant in certain ways but i think i mean it might strike other people differently and like i mean it seems like holden like had just like a more positive disposition when i first asked him about it when we got on the podcast or before we started recording like what what do you think when you what do you how do you feel when you think about this movie i guess really how do you feel because i feel bad see but i mean that as a compliment i just want to be clear See, like, the thing that, like, I like about Albert Brooks, the thing that kind of draws me in is the fact that I think he and another contemporary of his, Elaine May, they're, like, the first, like, masters of cringe. Like, I I, I don't get, like, me personally, I don't uh, get, like, I have a fr- like, our friend Daniel, like, if he watches something that is cringe, he'll just, like, have to, if it gets too cringy, he has to just, like, pause and just take a break. And I don't have, I, maybe I'm a broken human being, but I take delight in the fact that he is trying to make the audience very, very uncomfortable with this toxic relationship in the movie. And, 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 and like, those are like my favorite type of rom-coms too, like where I feel like they're the most honest, <laughs> um, yeah. where they're, you know, pointing out the warts uh, um, of the relationships and like showing them in a very unflattering way. And I always think when I think back to that movie, I think to back to like the coda, the film where, you know, they're like breaking up and then getting back together. And then like the uh, credits roll up and like, like, like kind of just undermines what you just saw. And I, and I, which is a, something that he is a, the visual technique that he keeps going back to in like also like lost in America as well. But like, I, I like like the thing with like Albert Brooks, he is a master of cringe. And I think one of the things about his like technique as a comedic director is he does these very long wide shots where, you know, the take is going for quite a bit of time unbroken. And it's just, you're, you're sitting with this, you're seeing these characters just self-destruct 
in front of you. And, you know, he the most memorable version of this is also in his uh, later film, Lost in America, where he's pleading with the casino owner uh, to give him a break. Well, I was about and, to I was about to bring that scene up because, like, I don't think anything in Modern Romance makes me cringe like that scene in, or in Lost in America. Like, I mean, Modern Romance makes me feel bad, but it doesn't make me feel like secondhand embarrassment in the same way necessarily. <laughs> and, and again, in, in both movies, he's showing like a toxic relationship and show like the reason why he gets cast in Drive is because in like Lost in America, Nicholas Winding Refn as a kid, he saw this scene where they're at, uh, I, I think, like the Hoover Dam or something like that. And he's yelling at Julie Haggerty or whatever and getting really intense. And he's like, that like frightened him as a child. And he always had that on the back of his mind when he created <laughs> gangster character in Drive. <laughs> and I think that's the thing. Like, I think that's the thing that sort of attracts us to Albert Brooks is the fact that there is this like anger. There's just like, there's this darkness within that like, I think we probably all have. Uh, uh, and it's just waiting to bubble up in the surface, and he's just unrelenting in the, in the sense that he wants to like show us our worst selves. Like he he's hell bent on doing so. Can you imagine that interview with uh, Nicholas Whiting Refn? So for for uh, was it Benny Bernie in Drive? Were you looking at like Michael Corleone or or? Or Jimmy the Janet. Now is Albert Brooks in Lost in America <laughs> screaming at his wife. Um, and also funny that it's like a Danish filmmaker that like was that focused on a movie about like you know the American experience from the mid eighties, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's like a ninety minute dump on Easy Rider too. <laughs> In, in that, in, in like thing of like Lost in America, I remember when like I was getting uh, my friend Daniel into Albert Brooks movies. His main takeaway from it is uh, after he had watched a succession of like you know real life uh, modern romance and Lost in America, his thing is like if there's one thing that like Albert Brooks seems to hate like the most uh, in people is their desire for ambition. Like mm-hmm. it, it just seems like something he's constantly. Uh, on pouring like cold water on just like anybody's ambitious ideas and likes to mock their hubris uh, for even attempting to uh, 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 having, uh, you know, trying to fulfill their ambitions. Uh, it's, it's hilarious. Well, 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 yeah. Well, actually, you know, it's funny is we didn't, we're not really on defending your life yet, but it's almost like that's kind of the inverse of that thesis though. And that he's like saying like, look, people should have more ambition. Like you need to like live life to its fullest. Oh yeah, and like again, and he does, and and again, I think defending your life and real life are probably like the most like, even though they're diametrically opposed in terms of like tone, in terms of like again, de- defending your life is a very warm-hearted, earnest film, and and um, real life is a very uh, a cynical one. They're they're the most high concept of his movies. Mm-hmm. Those two are like the ones where he has like the most <clears throat> high concept premise and. And then, like, as you said, like, it that is sort of the inversion. Uh, and I would say that's the last great movie he made. Um, and that is the inversion of uh, uh, of his one of his central themes. And it's highly, like, literalized and visualized with, like, the Albert Brooks, like, chasing the different buses or trams that are going in different directions. I rewatched Defending Your Life today, even though I had just seen it a couple weeks ago. Uh, I watched it before work. Oh my gosh, that scene made me cry. It's so good. Yeah, that Michael Gore score, just like building and building, and he's like, 
Julia, Julia. Oh, it's so good. It just feels so unlike anything else in any of the other movies, too. It's just like it's, it's so earnest. Yeah. You know what's weird about it too? Because like if you think of like the relationship in Lost in America or the relationship in Modern Romance, right? Those don't necessarily seem like the most healthiest of uh, romantic relationships. Whereas Defending Your Life, when I watched it uh, for the first time. I remember coming away from thinking, like, this is the rare rom-com where I actually give a shit about, like, the actual romance. Like, Mm -hmm. like, I actually want them to be together. Like, I actually care. Because even, like, in rom-coms I do love, with very few exceptions, like, you know, to me, the romance of it all is maybe secondary compared to, like, the comedy and, like, maybe the observations they're making. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in this case, like, I actually cared about the romance. And I have a hot take. That's my favorite Meryl Streep performance by I'm far. I'm kind of right there with you. Like, I like my Meryl Streep. Yeah. You know, there's there's that game, like, has Meryl Streep been in, like, she gives so many great performances. How many of her films are actually, like, masterpieces or greats? I would go so far as to say that not only is Defending Her Life maybe one of a handful of, of examples, but that is her best work. It is, she is so effervescent and yeah. just so impossible. And she is a person, like, I think if you're being, if you're being very surface level about it, you can, you know, kind of uh, hit her with the manic pixie dream girl thing. But she's not. This is a fully developed person with who, like, loves food and who is good to people, who is upset about the way they died, who, like, who is totally aware of Albert Brooks's character, but, like, knows that, that he's kind of straight into figure things out and just waiting him out because he's very funny and he clearly cares about her. Well, a question I was going to pose to you guys and, um, I was, and I, I'm right there with you guys. And like, I, th- I would think I was pretty struck by her. Cause I mean, I, I, I've watched a good amount of her movies now, but at the time that I watched adaptation for the first time, I don't oh, think, I, I, I don't think I'd seen it like, any other real movie of hers that were in a, in a while at that point where it felt like she played a normal person. Like, I mean, you know, in, uh, I guess in like in deer hunter and Kramer versus Kramer, I'd say after those, maybe she got away from that for a little while. And it felt like everything else was a little more, I don't know. There's a lot of accents, a lot of accents in there. There's a lot of really histrionic type of things going on. And for a while after those two, and then I saw adaptation, I was like, okay, I really do think I like her in this mode. And then I saw defending your life at after adaptation. I'm like, yeah, I really like this. And a question I thought as I was rewatching defending your life the other day, and I wanted to pose to you guys was, uh, and I guess we're jumping all over the place now, but it's fine. I, I my thought was like, do you think it's more impressive that like this Mer- Meryl Streep was able to play this character and make it and make you conceivably buy that she would actually be really this genuinely interested in this Albert Brooks or that were you more impressed that Albert Brooks was able to like hold the screen as like a, a credible potential partner for Meryl Streep Ooh, that's a good question because <laughs> this is also coming at a time when Meryl Streep is in is doing more comedies but critics just hate her in them oh really they're really mean yeah See, like, I, I like postcards think, from the edge yeah. which is like right before this I think I think that's like kind of an exception but also like death becomes her and a few other things like people are like okay. oh, we found the one thing Meryl can't do I think I think like postcards from the edge is the one that like like where like they came around a little bit uh, mm-hmm. where like she gets an Oscar nomination from that one that is ostensibly like a, like a dramedy but like more on the comedic side but yeah like she holds back on it until like Devil Wears Prada like um, in by the way like you know now that I think about like the Meryl Streep comedies like. Uh, like you know it's complicated like yeah i'm like I, I i like her in that mode like where where she is just like an like and like a normal person and 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 you know she's not doing anything histrionic uh, um 
but yeah, like that, that I think we're so preconditioned though at this point of the unconventional, uh, uh, leading man, like Albert Brooks, like, you know, and Woody Allen and a lot of other these, uh, uh, guys fall into this mold that like, we're, we're so conditioned to it that I think it's easier for us to believe that he can hold down a relationship with Meryl Streep. Hmm. Uh, but like, but I think of like, like there's a scene where like, I think she has like, like, like spaghetti or noodle, like in her mouth, uh, um, in the movie. And it's just so like, it's such an endearing scene. Like, I don't know. It's a beautiful romance. Like, well, I, I, right after they leave the comedy club, which I mean, I, I, I was going to say, like, I think, it, I think it's, the movie's just well-written enough that like, I think you, you really do think this guy, this guy's actually pretty funny. And like, you could see why she'd be charmed by him is how I would answer the own, my own question. I just posed to you guys. And it's like, yeah, she does a good job of genuinely seeming like she would be into him. But like at the same time, he wrote himself a pretty funny character and some of those jokes he's cracking in the comedy club. Like, yeah, I, I chuckled at them too. But right after they walk out of the comedy club, she does the, the boop, got your nose thing. And I was like, I, I didn't remember that from the first time I had seen it. And I was like, so good. that is so weird. But at the same time, like, it didn't necessarily feel as weird as it probably should have been because she's just, she's so comfortable with him already. And that's just so impressive on Meryl Streep's part, I think. And also the other performer in that movie, that's really good is Rip Torn. Uh, He's he's amazing in that movie. Just like, ah, eating the scenery. (laughs) And then like some of the like absurdist bits, like um, that they do in the movie. And it's been a little bit a while since I've seen it, but I remember like, they're in a booth and like I think he's showing like uh, um, like like all these like possible outcomes or something of or these uh, or traumatic. oh his past lives yeah 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 yeah, uh, yeah. past life visit pavilion yeah. yeah 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 and it's just a weird gag that it's just I think probably and again I think defending your life in real life you know I think those are his most ambitious high concept movies and it's maybe a reason why maybe like after uh, defending your life like the quality goes down because maybe by then like he had put all that he can kind of do. But even mother is pretty interesting as a film. Like, I don't think it fully works, but it's, it's, that one's an interesting one as well, where, uh, uh, where like Debbie Reynolds is his mom. And, and again, it's another toxic relationship that he's exploring. Uh, um, and then the ending of that film, the twist to it is so like, it's like just, is Albert Brooks like that's um and I think that I like uh speaking of like his endings like I remember uh, watching real life I realized the thing with Albert Brooks is he kind of has this Steve Martin sensibility where like it's it's not the, just the punchline that's funny it's that like I'm gonna take my time and like give you this very very long setup and that's like the structure of real life and then once the punchline comes you're gonna appreciate set up even more because uh, it's just building up to him burning down that house <laughs> well, the, the best bit in real life is it's it's one joke mm-hmm. and it could be the only joke in the movie and it would still probably be his funniest movie um, is whenever you see the camera people with those helmets <laughs> just pop up in the background it just gets funnier and funnier and you think oh this will get old and it never gets old it's the best thing just they're in these like really like the family's like i don't know if we can do this this is so weird and just you see these people grabbing their heads well it's just funny because it's like it it makes absolutely no sense because in the first place like yeah we got this really modern technology which is going to allow people to still like observe life like they're not even there but it's like 
they're picking the other people wearing the helmets up on there. Like you may as well have just had a goddamn cameraman. <laughs> they're so impressed with themselves for having come up with this. We have two of the five cameras in the world like this. <laughs> yeah, you know that's a great line where he's like, "There's six of these ever made, all right, and we and only four of them have ever worked, and we have three of them." <laughs> like and but here's the weird thing though he like it it, like it's it's a silly gag it's a little it's a silly psych gag but he predicted digital filmmaking in that moment because um they're like we like he says like we're not using film and then he takes out this like panel We're, we're using this digital thing and we're gonna convert it to film and like the weird thing about real life it's like it's a perfect satire in the sense that it it was very prescient like uh it you know it you know it's based off it's inspired by the pbs thing um like an american family which was like one of the first early examples of a reality tv show but he really is like predicting where we're heading in terms of reality television and and, and it's just it's just so striking that like he was on the money about it in like 19 I don't know if it was like a super basic take of me to have, but I was my my, my initial thing was like, oh, he basically three years after network, he did for reality TV what network did for cable news and just was like just ahead of the game. Yeah. And that's by the way, that's like like, both movies like fit my definition of what like is a successful satire where it is you take like real life and you add like some type of exaggerated element to it like that is a hook. And then, like, that exaggeration over time after the movie progresses no longer becomes an exaggeration. It just becomes, like, you know, the state of reality. And But, yeah, like, I I 100% agree that it is in line with Network in terms of its vision of, you know, the degradation of, like, television. Because the fact is, he's so impressed with himself at the beginning of that movie that he's like, this is going to be riveting to watch a real American family just live their lives normally. And it becomes, like, so evident, like, to everyone, like, halfway through the movie that, like, yeah, there's not really much here, but it's you're just making these people hate themselves, but it's really not that interesting to watch. So he just has to become a reality TV producer. And the fact is, like, like we don't I – don't, I, don't, I don't know if you guys watch much reality TV yourselves. I don't I, – I, for me, it basically, like, begins and ends with The Bachelor. That's, like, the, the one indulgence I will give myself. And I, I don't call it a guilty pleasure. Like, I enjoy watching it. I, I do – I feel a little embarrassed about how many Bachelor podcasts I've listened to, but it's, like, the one <laughs> – it's like the one place i'll go and but like i wouldn't watch that show if all those people were normal like no one watches reality tv for that and like this 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 movie got that like 13 years before the real world was even a thing you know and then also like and the thing in that movie what i'm taken away uh, taken back by it's not just that albert brooks is, is toxic but also the husband in that movie played by uh, Charles Grodin, he's also equally unlikable. You know, he's in this, like, again, another talk, the toxic relationship here is both like our relationship with with our future relationship with reality television. Right. Mm -hmm. But also the toxic relationship that is marriage. And like, you know, the wife has a crush on Albert Brooks and then like the, the, the husband's very controlling and is kind of doing this against the will of his family. But it also leads to one of the best gags ever, which is when he kills the horse. (laughs) (laughs) 
it was, I mean, it was, it was, it was just funny. He just kept, it went on for like 10 minutes. He's like, can we like not show that? And he's like, I, I just don't think that's good for my job. And he just kept having to, Albert Brooks just keeps reassuring him. No, no, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. And it's like, no, it probably won't. <laughs> By the way, I feel like okay, like Albert Brooks, like um, a little background on his family life is that, you know, his dad was a, a stand up comedian who famously died on stage after like a tremendous set at a, like Friars Roast. And his brother is Bob Einstein, who was on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Marty uh, Funkhauser. Uh, yeah. And then, which, by the way, I think Curb Your Enthusiasm has a little bit of that Albert Brooks like tone now that I think about it. But like, you know, like, okay, so at a young age, your dad dies in the kind of a funny death, too. Um, um, And you know how like this, like different stages of grief. I feel like the one that like Albert Brooks probably fixated the most on was the one his dad died on. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) but the bargaining stage, the bargaining phase of like grief, because like a lot of his best moments in the in his movies are characters just bargaining with each other uh 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 and and just how pathetic they are like just the scene with charles Grodin's just like like it, it's almost like a prelude to the casino scene and lost whoa, whoa, wait 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 i like that you said that though and before you jump to lost in america because i wanted to go back to modern romance and it's funny because modern romance is basically an hour and a half of bargaining and <laughs> in like a very unhealthy way and even defending your life right isn't that like about oh, yeah. like yeah, like yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I think like that's just like a central premise to his. Uh, but like, I think I think when we're bargaining, right? It's like one person has all the power, and another person's. It's a negotiation of power, right? And you're trying to change that dynamic. And I think Albert Brooks really likes seeing the people who are are in the other side who do not have any bargaining power whatsoever like you know lose their self-respect in their pleading and 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 it's just comedic gold yeah i think another thing about these album brooks movies is that they're all um they're very much about uh you know they're about creativity to a large degree or about like uh imagination and you know real life he thinks he can make this thing that it'll be so great just because people to him are inherently interesting you know he's he's fixated on that and then the same thing in modern romance where he's a film editor and he wants his his love life to he wants to be as in control of that as he is in shaping a movie and then he, they try to take control of their destiny and lost in america um and then you know like the boomers before them who thought they could separate themselves from their parents he just goes back to working some corporate job that he give, gives up at the beginning of the movie. For a, um, he for a, sells for a, out for a, thir- like, for a thirty percent reduction in salary because he's, <laughs> he's that desperate to have, live that kind of materialistic lifestyle again after convincing himself otherwise. He 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 eats shit and he takes a thirty percent reduction, yeah. and then um, and then defending your life is is sort of the culmination of all of that and a lot of things um, where it's like, look, you had all these opportunities um, to just accept your life as they were and to just, you know make good choices and, you know, not be a total nervous wreck. You know, you have one good thing after you died and you still could totally mess that up. Oh, and, and by the way, like in Lost in America, like, cause that is a movie that kind of just like a lot. And that probably was to him, one of his more ambitious, like on the criterion, 
a channel they have a lot of featurettes for it and talking about the long process of it getting made and how he wasn't originally going to be the star of it he wanted bill murray to play the lead but bill bill murray's schedule um was so insane that it would take them like two years uh to have Bill Murray available, he's like, fuck it, all right, I'll just like, shoot it uh, with me starring in it. But that movie, you know, it kind of is a culmination of, like, a lot of his, like, interests and stuff, and he's taking, and that's probably one of his more grounded, that and Modern Romance are, like, his, like more grounded films, but it's grounded with, like, this giant scope that can, that gets smaller and smaller. Like, you think, oh, this is going to be a road trip movie, and then suddenly they're just like, uh, we lost all our money. Now you have to be a, 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 a crossing guard, which is just the most like humiliating. In some town. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, 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 I think I told I told Josh that after I watched it, and that like I just based on the the, the I guess just the the poster and the title, I I just assumed it was a road trip movie, and I really didn't like the scene where he had to try to convince the casino manager just to give him a bunch of money it was so uncomfortable and because I, I, I or actually i didn't like that but i also didn't like the choice to have the wife do that in the moment because i'm like all right how am i supposed to take her seriously this is going to be some relationship comedy the rest of the movie where they're just driving across america how am i supposed to take her seriously as a character if we're just going to like gloss over what she just did and then it doesn't the movie has the guts to just like go off the rails and have like him just lose his shit for the next 30 minutes and as i'm watching this i'm like wait like I see the runtime, I see it's like a ninety-minute movie. I'm like, we only have a half an hour left in this movie, and they've gone to one city because he justifiably lost his shit on his wife. And I was like, okay, well, at least that makes sense from like a, a, the choice a character might make. It just feels very weird that this movie is almost over. And I, I just I like the boldness of like having the story go in like that unexpected of a direction and just like end up in this dead end town. Like I I, I don't know. I, I was just very impressed with him that like he had the guts to do something that untraditional and seemingly against expectations. And like one thing also to know about like Lost in America, I was watching like the featurettes on the Criterion Collection and one of the things that like um he, he like said is that outside of him and Julie Haggerty, most of the speaking roles in the film were just, like, locals that they picked. Like, they weren't necessarily, like, trained actors. And, like, it, the only reason why Gary Mar- Gary Marshall, uh, who plays a casino owner, it is, you know, the director of Pretty Woman and the creator of Happy Days, um, the reason why he was in it was just, like, um, like, basically, you know, he was a friend of Albert Brooks. He was in the same social circle. And then his partner, and we can't, like, omit her, Monica uh, Johnson, uh, which was his writing partner, um, drew out like some of his earlier films. Like she just suggested, like yeah, maybe this should be Gary Marshall, who hadn't like <laughs> really acted before. And it's and it's just it's it's perfect casting. And then like the the uh, fry cook manager of his wife was again just a local teenage boy that they found. And I just think like the thing that like makes the Albert Brook movies like modern romance and lost in America in particular feel uh, make them even funnier. It's like, there is this authenticity to the world that he's like creating. Cause again, he is showing humanity as it's worse. And, and I think it helps that it looks exactly like our world. Like it, this could happen to us. Like, on any given day. Hmm. I don't know. Do you guys have any other, I kind of, I kind of like how this conversation went. I, at first I was trying to like, just talk about two movies, but I think we, we've kind of hit a lot of the different uh, points of his career and a lot of the things he tries to accomplish in his movies before we kind of wrap it up. Holden, was there, were, were there any other aspects of just Albert Brooks or any other specific parts of any of these movies that really kind of resonated with you that you wanted to touch on before we finished up? Um, 
yeah, just, you know, talking about all of this, sort of realizing how much, you know, he is obsessed with filmmaking and, and movies in general is so interesting. And, uh, you know, really thinking about the extent to which he, you know, he, he just, he has such a, a sense of, of culture and trends and so forth and the way we behave. Like, I think the thing about modern romance that, you know, that is, that resonates is that, you know, it's, it still holds up. Um, all, all of his behavior and everything that happens, you could re- release that movie today, mm-hmm. basically keep it the same. And it would be pretty recognizable. There would be like one subplot about him, like looking at her going through her phone. And other yeah. than that, like it all, it, it, it would all work today. Like, it, cause there's not even that many things technology would really make all that different besides like him being overly possessive with, with one technological thing, maybe. Yeah. Like yeah. there's, he, oh yeah. He's like going through his Rolodex. You would, he would, instead he would just do like Tinder or like some <laughs> contact he had in his, you know, but, um, you know, and then I think, yeah, defending your life. I think that's just this perfect ending point for him where he kind of, sets all of that aside and you know he tries a few other times and mother doesn't you know has some interesting ideas and is very funny i don't think the ending really works um yeah i love love, like the twist ending of it when you say the the, the fact that she was a writer is that what you mean by twist oh i like that that part i like yeah a lot yeah like that she's like this whole time that she's not like buying his bullshit uh, uh she has a negative opinion of him as well i thought it was great and, and debbie reynolds in that movie was pretty good well that the, she's what i like the most okay, about it great. Like, i love yeah she's the best part of that like movie. i like i feel like it, she he got a great performance from her but i i just kind of felt like with mother like he had a he had a really a, a smart idea like a an, an obvious starting point for a movie with what if a man figured out in order to like fully actualize himself as a person he needed to like work out unresolved issues with his mother but i feel like while that might have been a good choice to like have her like you know kind of be a writer and have her like maybe have all these other feelings about him that come to the surface i felt like it was just a very quick resolution at that point at the end like all that happens in like the last 10 minutes of the movie and i don't know i think it kind of it's it's all kind of like backloaded in a way where i don't think whatever his actual revelation or point was as to like what that character really needed to fully understand really totally comes through and that movie would have benefited from like being i don't know 20 minutes longer you know had a few a few less scenes of them just you know bitching at each other earlier in the movie <laughs> yeah it's yeah. you make an interesting point because like a, a common thing with Albert Brooks's movies in terms of their endings is that they always feel abrupt now I like that quality to them I like that I feel like it like it, it, it has like a funnier thing that like oh this thing is not going to resolve as neatly as you think it is even though he is trying to resolve it neatly with usually like like his like title scrolls or whatever mm-hmm. but yeah they're each film, I think, has an abrupt one, with maybe the exception of defending your life. And it's funny that like Mother's the one that doesn't like fully work because it seems like uh, uh, it's in line with like the style of his other films, you know. And again, I don't, I don't think it's a perfect movie or anything. I think it's the weakest one out of like the five, you know. Uh, but like Holden like mentioned the uh, uh, like modern romance, how like you don't really have to change much maybe add like a uh, reference to like tinder and i'm like dating apps is just like would be ripe territory for him if if he was around for dating apps if he had ever made a rom-com that dealt with that i think like it would have been per- I, like i'm waiting for the albert brooks comedy a rom-com 
the, about like Bumble and Tinder, not like <laughs> today, but like, you know, a filmmaker, like a modern Albert Brooks, whoever that is. And I don't know who, I think like, you know, Roy Anderson is like the closest like comparison, but he's just such a singular filmmaker that I just wish that th- there was more of his work. I wish like he had continued making um, more movies, honestly. Yeah, I think uh, Master of None has that episode where he goes on a series of first dates. That's kind of the closest we've gotten, where it's specifically about the the light speed pacing of modern dating mm-hmm. um, or, you know, kind of um, post-internet dating. But, yeah, I think people have tried and it just doesn't work. For, for whatever reason. I'm trying to think if there's like a good movie with online dating as like a major subplot. I'm sure there are. Yeah. But yeah. By the way, you mentioned Aziz, um, you know, like his book on like relationships was called yes. Modern, Modern Romance. Romance. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've read that. It's uh, it's it, it is very it's very narrow in its scope and it is aware of that. It's very upfront about it, um, but very revealing and a very, very interesting read. Um, uh, maybe maybe the don't really have much else to say about Aziz on sorry. No, yeah. <laughs> my, my last point I'll make there though is that just I mean, as far as just the timelessness of modern romance is that like I just wanted to echo that. Like I definitely agree. And the one thing that jumped out to me when I rewatched it last weekend is just like how many times the word love is in that movie. And mm-hmm. I, I just I, I had forgotten that part of it, even if I remembered the gist of the movie and all the all the, the choices the characters make pretty well and that like that it's all the same language that someone would use nowadays like uh, just to just to try and get their way and uh, we already talked about it all being kind of like one big bargaining thing but it's a very it's 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 a very manipulative character and in a way that doesn't feel all that uncommon from things you do still see being made today and he just did it first and it was really impressive um, Actually, uh, did you guys know that um, Stanley Kubrick was obsessed with modern romance? I like, did. I'd read that. It was that's crazy. Yeah, like when he, when it came out, he called like uh, Albert Brooks and just like berated him with <laughs> questions about like how did you made that movie? Like he was super impressed by it because. He always wanted to make a movie about jealousy. Well, Later, which was interesting. I, yes. re- I read that before I got in here. I read that on the Wikipedia, I think, for the movie. And I don't think of it first and foremost as a movie about jealousy. That's obviously part of it. But I think it, I think of it as more of a movie about like insecurity and uh, fear of being alone is almost what I see that drives that character. But, I mean, obviously a lot of it's jealousy too. But like he, he doesn't even know what's going on with her for half the time where he's just like trying to track her down and go to a business dinner. He, I don't even know what he's really jealous of. He's just like overly possessive and uh, – uh, just he, he literally cannot stand the thought of being alone. Uh, but jealousy is certainly a part of that. But it's it's interesting that that's what Kubrick took from it. I mean, it's very much about a movie who, you know, a guy who cannot get over the idea that <clears throat> this relationship that he ended, that <laughs> the person he broke up with could have a life outside right. of him. Um, that terrifies him more than anything else. Yeah. You mentioned that editing scene earlier too. I do want to shout that out. Like that, that's, that's, <laughs> so- I, say, I like that, like in a movie that's so narrowly focused on like, you know, Control. These two characters, well, it's just, well, yeah, it is about control. And I guess that's largely kind of what the editing process is about with all the cooks you have in the kitchen once the other producer and director kind of come through and uh, give their thoughts on it. But it's so focused on like the actual, the, the, the two, the two characters, the two characters that are in the actual central romance. It, it takes the time to like actually have this whole other sequence about just film editing in a way that I've never really seen 
put to screen in any other way before and it's i it's really interesting it was kind of like the first time i ever understood fully what an editor did you know it's so good it's a great scene um and then the sound editing scene of course i've never laughed at anything harder it's it gets me every time i love it and in in that scene that's another director that he casts in in a speaking role james l brooks oh yeah gives him like his most like gives albert brooks his most like that's the thing like what i foolishly when we had like our film discussion group we would like do like you know different filmmaker weeks and we'd do polls and albert brooks was like the one that kind of broke it in the sense that like they didn't just do his director career but we also did like the movie starring him it was a bad move on my part well i i just thought he wouldn't get past if <laughs> if, it, if broadcast news wasn't there because people hadn't seen um, his director works because they're kind of obscure to be honest. Um, yeah. Lost in America, I think, was the only one that was anywhere near like a hit. Uh, but but yeah, you know, like I feel like broadcast. You know, when you think of their directing career of uh, uh, Albert Brooks, even though he did not direct broadcast news, did not write it, it feels like broadcast news is also you know in line with like his authorial voice. You know, and and you know his character that movie is the thing that I gravitate towards the most uh unfortunately like that's also not a likable character <laughs> he's not uh, <laughs> but also it's like how can you not relate to him and like he's not even wrong a lot of the time he's just such a child and I think they're all three of those characters the beauty of that, of that movie is that all three of them are great and all three of them are deeply flawed um but I think yeah he's easily at least for me the one that I'm like I just I get it um, I'm going to agree with you there, but not chime in because I could. This podcast could go like a whole other hour if I start yeah. talking about broadcast news because I have like so many thoughts on that movie. Uh, a great movie. So yeah, I, I want to kind of wrap up the discussion though, uh, and, and give you, and give each of you one last chance to give any other final Albert Brooks thoughts before we kind of move on to other recommendations. So Josh, do you have any other any other takes you need to get off your chest about Albert Brooks before we wrap this up? I think like you know. As a comedy, like comedy directors don't get uh, a lot of respect, right? But I think Albert Brooks is an auteur and, and a skillful director, especially in how he is doing how the use of the long takes in his films uh, to get a comedic response. And usually that is one of cringe, right? There's just not many directors, uh, comedic or otherwise, that are as skillful. Uh, and as singular as uh, Albert Brooks is in the short span of his directed career. Is, is that Lost in America scene on the bus at the uh, Hoover Dam? Is that kind of done in one take in a way? I can't remember. Um, I, got, I got to look back, but I'm sure like there's not very much cutting it yeah. if there is at all yeah i i, I want to second that point because like I, I feel it's a thing i've talked a lot a lot about on the podcast before is just how i, I feel like a lot of time I, i'm really taken in a lot of ways when i see like a because i mean it, it became a big the, the, the single takes became like a big thing in action movies over the last you know seven years since true detective did mm-hmm. it and i mean i mean i was always very impressed with that but at the same time it, hey it maybe got old a bit and so i've been as i've done a better job of going back and watching old movies whether you know it, it be how like 
I don't know how Hitchcock did it or how Wong Kar Wai did it or stuff like that. And I'm like, okay, well, there's other ways it's, this has been done that weren't in action movies. And, but I hadn't really seen a whole lot of people do it in comedies. And I hadn't even thought a lot about that until I watched Modern Romance with Albert Brooks. But it's a, it's a good, it's, it's, it's a good observation that I don't know. And I don't know if it's something he gets nearly enough credit for, because that is a pretty innovative thing for comedies. Holden, do you have any other final Albert Brooks thoughts before we wrap up? Oh, um, I, I think Albert Brooks uh, is such a special um, comedic voice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he only has like, I guess, how, like seven films in total. But, you know, this this stretch in particular, mm-hmm. even the movies I'm not as crazy about, I think are really thought provoking and couldn't come from anybody else. Um, he has an ethos and that's threaded through all of his movies to some degree or another. And, you know, I like that he that he stretches himself, that all of his movies are uh, are focused on different things and that he brings very subtle things to to his craft that, you know, to he I don't think he's as stylish or um, as cinematically ambitious as someone like Woody Allen. But I think he does things um, that um, that still work really well and that serve the film um, beyond just, you know, his own taste, um, or his own attempts to recreate something. And, you know, he really is just one of those people who, um, for a long time, even when he wouldn't make a lot of movies, each one of them knew what they were doing and whether or not you like them, you know, like you say, they succeed, um, overall. And, uh, yeah, I, it's, it's kind of a shame that, we haven't had more people who have taken cues from him, but I think with his films becoming more readily available, hopefully we'll start seeing that in the next five or 10 years, maybe sooner. That's very well said. So Holden, one thing that we've been doing on the podcast since the pandemic started is because people are all at home, just stuck watching stuff is asking them if they have any other quarantine streaming recommendations. So I'll ask Josh first if, uh, and then you can think of something if you want to offer up anything that you want to recommend people can watch. Uh, but Josh, has there been any non Albert Brooks stuff you've watched recently, whether it be TV or movies that you want to direct people to that you've really enjoyed? See the past two months, like I, I like during the start of quarantine, I'd watched a lot of movies mm-hmm. and I hit my 3000 film mark, uh, early, like last month. Right. However, um, because of the election stuff, I haven't really been uh, uh, paying too much attention to movies. I'm like sort of all movie dad. Well, again, it doesn't have to be uh, movies. It can be TV, or you can recommend people watch the debates if you really enjoyed that last night. <laughs> <laughs> it can be anything. <laughs> I watched real, real life just coming off of the first presidential debate, and I'm like, I need to laugh. I just needed. <laughs> and, and not only that, but like, I'm like, you know what? We're kind. Unfortunately, I think we're living in Albert Brooks's America. <laughs> yeah, um, we're lost in his America. Da-da-da. Yeah, honestly, he should have made a political comedy. Like, I think that's like the next social satire he should have made. But um, uh, like if if, if uh, Cure is still on Criterion Channel, that's like the best. Oh, if you actually are a fan of um. Albert Brooks and like 70s comedies and stuff like that. Another one, if it's still on the Criterion channel, I gotta double check. The original Fun with Dick and Jane, the 1971 mm. starring Jane Fonda and George Siegel. That one is hysterical and it's a great social satire. And also um, the Out of Towners, the original 
I have a weird thing for these like seventies like studio comedies, but I think like, you might have mentioned that on here before. But I, I forgot about the fun with Dick and Jane, which I think we might have talked about offline. So I'm glad you reminded me of that because I I'm, I'd be curious to actually go back and watch that. Holden, have you watched any non Albert Brooks stuff in like the last week or so that really stuck stuck with you that you want to recommend to people? Throughout quarantine, I've been very obsessed with just comfort food. So I yeah. found myself rewatching a lot of like I I did a whole thing where I rewatched all the Disney Renaissance movies. And you know, what? I'll just I'll just parrot that one. That was a while ago. Um and the one that I was so surprised that I came away liking yeah. the most that I'm like this is a genuine masterpiece. I think this is the kind of this this movie has a character that we don't give enough credit for being as dimensional as um groundbreaking and still relevant today and that's The Little Mermaid. Okay. That movie is incredible. I think Ariel is the kind of Disney heroine we never get anymore who makes huge mistakes that she, that there's not really a logical justifiable reason for, but that is totally understandable on like an emotional level um, who then learns from them. And actually the thing that I had misremembered was that everyone solves her problems for her, but that's not really the case. She's actually in the end, totally involved totally saving those around her and active in a way that I totally just wasn't keyed into. Um, the, the music is beautiful, especially, um, Howard Ashman's lyrics, who I've been listening to a lot of his contributions over the last couple of months. And there's just any kind of lyricist, like whether it's purely in music or in film, there's nobody like him. He is just, uh, it's, we lost him too soon. And, but everything he did is indelible and uh, no one can top him. And th- that is the pinnacle of Clements and Musker coming together with uh, Mencken and and Ashman. And uh, it's just just a perfect little movie. That's I a, love it so much. That's a great recommendation. I, I It's one that I haven't rewatched in a while because I've, re- I've revisited a lot of these old Disney stuff as the live action stuff has come out. And we're going to be getting a live action Little Mermaid at some point in the next couple of years. And I hope they I hope uh, they I, I hope they pull it off. Um, I, and I'll, I'll, no, it's I'll, Rob Marshall. We'll see what happens. Yeah, I'll, I'll go back and I'll go back and watch the watch the original. I'm even more excited to do so now after hearing your recommendation for it. Uh, I, I was looking I before. Yeah, I was looking before we started recording about like stuff I haven't already recommended on the podcast because I've done a lot of episodes in the last couple of weeks. And the only movie I really haven't talked about on here yet is uh, one from your boy, Josh, Billy Wilder. I, watch, I watched The Lost Weekend. And That's a good, oh, big one. It's yeah, a good one. I was just trying to find stuff that was available, and I, I, I actually I might have had to buy it on Prime. I don't know if it's free streaming anywhere, but uh, it was definitely worth it. I think it was really cool to see a movie at that time of that time that uh, deals with addiction in a pretty smart way because I feel like we've gotten a lot smarter as a as a society about treating addiction as a disease as opposed to a personality flaw just in the last 10 to 20 years. Whereas I thought this movie for something that was made, you know, 75 years ago actually like was pretty smart in the way it talked about those things. And it allows that character to really discuss how he's feeling and the urges that he gets. And whereas like, I think a lot of other movies about addiction more kind of just kind of like kind of drown themselves in just their, just their own darkness and, uh, show someone doing a bunch of terrible acts but don't really get into the psychology of it in as interesting of a way as I think The Lost Weekend did. And I'm just really impressed with what that movie did in its time. But before we sign off, Josh, anything you want to plug? Twitter, Letterboxd, anything? Um, I have a photography Instagram account. Brown oh, Sickle. Yeah. Great Instagram. I love it. <laughs> oh, oh, really? Thank you. Thank you. And yeah, that's that's the only thing I have to well, plug. What, what's the handle? Uh, Brown Film Collective. That's, huh. that's the only thing I have to plug. 
Yeah, very good. good. Holden, do you want to plug your letterbox or your Twitter or anything like that? Yeah, just uh, maybe avoid my Twitter. Okay. Um, but definitely, <laughs> definitely a letterbox, um, just H.I. Martinson. And, uh, you know, that's it. All right, great. If I have more presence, I'll let you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, as usual, I'm Josh Jernavoy, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-Y on both Twitter and Letterboxd. Uh, the podcast Twitter is Rewind Movie Pod. Podcast Gmail is therewindmoviepod at gmail.com. Send any recommendations or feedback our way there. I'm recording a bunch of stuff in the next couple weeks, and I've already have a couple things in the can as we record this so i have no idea what's coming next week but we will have something new for you next week on either a new movie or an old movie so everyone stay tuned for that thanks to josh and holden for joining me and we'll see you next time